Uh, any Captain Underpants fans in the room today? I don't know if you know who Captain Underpants is, but uh, Captain Underpants is a, it's an illustrated uh, novel series for children, and uh, the two main characters are two fourth-grade boys, George Beard, Harold Hutchins, and these two boys specialize in two things, really. One is playing pranks. Uh, the other is writing comic books, and the person they most like playing pranks on is their principal, who's their arch nemesis, Mr. Krupp. And one of their comic books contains a hero, and the hero's name is Captain Underpants, and Captain Underpants can fly, Captain Underpants has superhuman strength, and Captain Underpants ends up coming to life, and comes in life in the form of Mr. Krupp, after they hypnotize him as a prank. Now their principal is up there wearing nothing but a red cape with black polka dots and white briefs. And each time that Captain Underpants displays his superpowers, he sticks one hip, one fist on his hip, the other up in his air, up in the air, and says, "Fa la la, Captain Underpants." Now I watched the movie adaptation of this series last Saturday. I watched it with my kids. My kids are 14, 11, and seven. I watched it with another a set of friends, this family of ours, and they have three kids: 10, seven, and two. And the two-year-old's name is Chloe. Chloe is wild. She's 100 miles per hour all the time. She's afraid of nothing, and because she's afraid of nothing, she's bumping in and into stuff and falling down all the time. She's got bruises and cuts and scrapes all over her. They call her a linebacker. And we go to the pool on this Sunday. We'd been watching the movie the day before, and out of nowhere, my friend and I are just in the pool enjoying ourselves, and Chloe runs up to the edge, and she puts one hand on her hip, one hand up in the air, and she says, fa, la, la, Captain Underpants, and she jumps in the pool. No one taught her this. No one dared her to do this. Captain Underpants didn't do this in the movie. She just thought it was a good idea, and she wasn't wearing a floaty. She just knew we were there, and so she did it, and so she went after the first time she did it, she looked at us, and she said, do it again. So we picked her up, put her outside the pool. She did the same thing. She got in the pool. She said, do it again. And she probably did it 200 times straight. It was unbelievable. And later that night, my friend and I were laughing about the day and especially laughing about Chloe. And he says, I bet that Chloe thinks she can swim now. You know, she wasn't wearing her normal floaty. She was in this big pool, not the kiddie pool. I'm scared to death that she's going to jump in the pool the next time we're there and I won't be there and she's going to be sunk. I said, bro, nothing to fear, man. The whole pool is going to hear her when she puts one fist on her hip and one fist in the air, and she says, follow like I have underpants. But I get it. I get why he's scared. Chloe thinks she can swim. She's swimming in the pool all day by herself and many times paddling around a bit and getting out. And to her, it seemed like she was swimming. She was doing all the things I would do when I swim, minus the chant. But the only thing that kept her from drowning was having two caring people in the pool to help her simulate swimming. And see, I wonder how much of our life is just like this. I mean, maybe the reason we've avoided one catastrophe after another in our lives is just God. He was there. He was the one being strong. He was the one caring for us. It might be tempting for us to think that we've sidestepped disaster because we're smart, because we're resourceful, maybe because we're privileged or we're lucky. 
But the truth is, the only reason we've sidestepped disaster, the only reason we've avoided catastrophe is God and him alone. And one of the Psalms is about the psalmist coming to this realization that he's only been held up by God all his life. So let's read it together. Justin's saying it, but let's read it. Psalm 124, verse 1. If it had not been the Lord who is on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who is on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us his prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. The word of the Lord. The psalmist in Psalm 124 is David. We're not exactly sure what incident in his life that he's drawing from when he writes this psalm, but I think it's possible it's 2 Samuel chapter 5. And so uh, go on your phone. Go from Psalm, go to 2 Samuel chapter 5. No, we don't do this often, we're going to do it this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 5, turn there with me. When we get to 2 Samuel chapter 5, you'll see a heading or two in the text that probably says something about David becoming king, and he has, he has just become king after this long journey from him being anointed as king as a young boy to overcoming Saul. Now he is king, and his first order of business is uh, to make sure that Jerusalem is not under Jebusite control any longer. He makes sure that it's not. And then we read in verse 10, if you'll look there, we read that he, David, became more and more powerful. Why was this? Well, you see it right there in the text. It says, because the Lord Almighty was with him. It didn't have anything to do with David's natural abilities as a leader. It didn't have anything to do about his learned military prowess had everything to do with God. Look at verse 11. You see in verse 11 that there's a neighboring nation, Tyre. Tyre hears of David's exploits and they send him supplies to help him build his palace there in verse 11. And then verse 12, it says that David knew the Lord was establishing him as king over Israel. Again, verse 12, David's aware that the source of his good gifts is God, it's not him. Then we see later in, cha in chapter five that David's lifelong adversaries, the Philistines, that they feel threatened by David now accumulating more resources, more power, and they're gonna come after him. They wanna make sure he doesn't get too settled, so they seek to take him down. And look what David does in verse 19. He prays. He asks God, shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? And then God tells him to go for it. David defeats the Philistines. So the Philistines come at him again. And David doesn't assume just because he's king, just because he's got a good resume now, now he doesn't just have a good track record that he should now just plow forward again. Look what he does in verse 22. Once more, the Philistines came up and they spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord. He prayed again and he defeats the Philistines again. See, David's animated by God's power, and he knows that this is all of God's doing. But notice that David is the one who fights the Philistines. David is the one who fights the Jebusites. I mean, yeah, he's got to strategize. Sure, he's got to take inventory of his military resources. He's got to deploy those resources. 
He's not forever in the prayer chapel here. David for sure breaks a sweat, but he knows that the origin of his power comes from outside of him. He knows that it's this power that's feeding all of his activity. So how does David keep this in perspective? How do we keep it in perspective? That even though we're active, even though we're breaking a sweat, trying to do what God wants us to do in our lives, how do we protect ourselves from seeing that the source of all this power and all this activity and all this accomplishment is us? How do we do that? I think we see it here in Psalm 124. I think there's three things. First thing you've got to do is you've got to recognize the danger of people. But did you notice all the images in verse 20, in chapter in 124? Big things like swallow us alive, floods sweeping over us. The torrent and raging waters would have gone over us. He's not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped from the snare. Big language, big images here. And it's clear that the psalmist has big problems. And that's why the psalmist uses big metaphors. You know, you and I, we've got big problems too, don't we? (laughs) I mean, sometimes our big problem is dealing with our own sin. We do bad things impulsively, even though we don't want to. We want to do good things and we just can't. We hurt other people despite our best intentions. We're sinners and it's a big problem, but that's not what David is talking about in Psalm 124. Now, sometimes our big problems is not just ourselves. Sometimes our big problems are living in a fallen world. It's cancer, it's natural disasters, it's accidents. But again, that's not what David is talking about here. Here's what he's talking about. Do you see it in verse two? His big problem is other people. I mean, think back to 2 Samuel chapter five. David's big problems in 2 Samuel chapter five are people. They're the Jebusites and the Philistines are trying to kill him. Now you might not have people who are trying to kill you, hurt you, It's just that their sin is leaking out on you and it can feel overwhelming to have to deal with other people's sin. And by the way, that's what it's like being in a relationship with you too. Your sin is leaking out on other people, hurting them. Now, I don't like having enemies. I don't like hurting other people. You probably don't like being someone else's enemy. You don't like hurting other people. But that's the truth of how things work as sinners, that our sin is the harmful agent in relationships. The reality is we hurt one another. We cause big problems for one another. And those big problems sometimes feel like torrents raging over us or being others prey or being caught in a snare. So if you're going to sing the song of Psalm 124, you have to come to grips with the size of your problems and the source of our problems often is other people. But the second thing we've got to do is we've got to see that God is bigger than our problems. See, even though the metaphor David uses are big and vivid, they, can't, they couldn't overpower David's God. You see verse 8. David refers to God's power by noting to his most powerful act, making heaven and earth. So yeah, if God made heaven and earth, he can take care of your problems. But what does it look like for God to take care of your people problems? Well, he certainly takes care of our people problems differently than we do. I mean, we try to take care of our people problems. We have a preferred game plan that's some mixture of revenge and numbing out, isn't it? When other people sin against us, 
We enact some form of revenge. Maybe it's slander behind their back. Maybe it's a cold shoulder. Maybe it's any form of being vindictive that we think equals out the scales a bit. Revenge. But sometimes we take a more passive approach, don't we? We numb out. We think lashing out, being violent in any kind of way in the midst of our hurts, it seems untenable because we want to appear nice. But the pain is still in there. We don't like feeling it. So what do we do with the pain that's in us when we don't want to lash out? We numb out, we overeat, we overdrink, we overexercise, we overwork, we overconsume media, and sometimes we even self-mutilate. But the problem with numbing out and the problem with revenge is they just exasperate the problem. They infect the wound, and now our problem is partly our fault and partly someone else's, and it becomes hard to tell what's ours and what's theirs. And now a big problem is bigger, and we need God to do a big work. But what does that work look like? Well, part of that work needs to happen inside of us, doesn't it? That work is the work of forgiveness. And we need God to enable us to forgive our enemy. And when we withhold forgiveness, either through revenge or through numbing out, it's like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Forgiveness, it's painful. It's more destructive when we withhold it. The other work we need God to do is we need him to do something with our offender, with our enemy. We need God to bring that person to repentance. Or we need God to judge that person for their unrepentant sin. And for all these things, we're unfit for all of this work. You, you can't forgive on your own. You, you can't bring another person to repentance. You can't execute judgment in a righteous manner. Only God can do that. And if God made heaven and earth, he's more than qualified to work on your heart and the hearts of those who have hurt you. And that's what the psalmist sees with Psalm 124. He recognizes the source of his hurt are people. He recognizes the power of God. And the third thing he sees is he sees God's willingness to save him. And look how willing God is. Our text says in verse 1 and verse 2, that God is on our side, repeats it twice. Verse seven says that God's rescued us from a snare. Verse eight says, God has been our help. So God's not been standing idly on the sideline with all the resources needed to deliver us and not done nothing. Instead, he stepped in. He's leveraged all his power for our saving. See, God is for you, brother and sister. L let me say that again. God is for you. For you. I know it seems like he's against you because your guilt racks you up and keeps you from sleeping at night. I know that it seems that God is against you because of, of your undealt with anger in the suffering that you've experienced in the past. I know it seems like God is against you because you think he's against you because of some lingering doubt or some half hearted faith that you've had. And I could keep going on and on and on about how you might think God is against you, but I can assure you of one thing and one thing only today, and it's that God has proven that he's for you. And he's proved it in his son. That's the text that Mary Beth read earlier from Romans chapter 8. I mean, it starts out like this in verse 31. It says, if God is for us, who can be against us? 
Well, the answer is nobody. <laughs> nobody can be against you if God's for you. But how do you know he's for you? Well, verse 32 tells us. Verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Ask us another question. Verse 33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Meaning, no one can bring a charge against you because you nor anyone else justified you. God did. Who is to condemn? Verse 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Meaning, Jesus isn't going to condemn you. So who do you think you are moping around in your self-condemnation, disagreeing with Jesus? Moreover, who do you think you are? Who do, who do the haters think they are bringing charges against you when they just need to take it up with Jesus? I mean, because as Christians, you know full well that your righteousness lies outside of you. It has nothing to do with your past track record of obedience. You know that your justification lies solely in Jesus' finished work that's been credited to your account. That's good news today. That means God's for you. So can I give you a homework assignment? Take Psalm 124. Copy down verses 1 verses 1 and 2, and replace Israel with your name. Take verses 3 to 7, chop them out, not because the Bible is not worth it, but because you need to personalize this for yourself. And you can list out all the ways that God's been holding you up. You can list out of all the calamities God has saved you from in your life. You can list out all the ways he's enabled you to forgive those who have wronged you. You can list out all the ways of how he's brought you to repentance. And then you close it out with verse eight, with David's words. The other thing I want to draw you to and draw your attention to in Psalm 124 is the communal nature of it. You see what would happen in this psalm is that people would travel from the surrounding communities around Jerusalem, the surrounding regions around Jerusalem, and they'd have to walk up the hill because Jerusalem sits on top of the hill. So this is called a psalm or a song of ascent. They were ascending, they were going up. And while they were ascending, they were singing this psalm and the ones around Psalm 124. So it makes sense that in verse 2 it would say Israel. They would sing this at, at, the, at, the, at their annual festivals as they would come to Jerusalem. And then you see, and throughout the psalm, there's the first person plural pronouns. You have our, us, and we. That means that as a community, they're reflecting on all the possible and all the real disasters that God has delivered them from. I know it's easy for us as 21st century Westerners that we read this individualistically only, and we should. I just gave you a homework assignment to do this individualistically. You should. But the psalmist didn't use first-person pronouns, I, me, my, and mine. What that means is that your faith and mine can't be individualistic only. It's got to be communal. There's got to be some us in our faith. It begs some questions, doesn't it? Where are you connected with other Christians to pray with and for each other? How big of a priority is Sunday worship in your life as we gather as a community and be communal? Are you in a small group of people who know and love you and you know and love other people? 
See, all these are worthwhile reflections for us as we think about community. But as I thought about Psalm 124 and I thought about what it might mean for us as Hope Presbyterian Church, I couldn't help but think back over the last eight years and I wanted to personalize it for us. And here's what I came up with. It says, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let hope now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, COVID would have wiped us out. Having a green pastor would have been the end of us. Worshiping in four locations in the span of five years would have been too much for us to handle. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, we would have been closed off to leaning into the issues of race and poverty where so many of us were new to it. Verse 8, yet God has delivered us and he's put us on solid ground. We have escaped from the clutches of the evil one. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. See, brother and sister, this is an important passage for us today. Because here's what's been true of us for the past 12 months or so. We've been growing. Our attendance is up. Our giving is up. All things that all churches wish were up. Those are the two numbers. Everybody wants to be on the up and up at every church. And it'd be tempting to see that the source of our strength is our numbers. It'd be tempting to see the source of our strength for other churches would be their building or their theology or their leaders or their history. But that's never the strength of any church. The strength of every church is God. The strength of every church is the church's ability to see their smallness and their weakness, their vulnerability and their rebellion and their need for God to deliver them. So brother and sister, I pray that we as a church, we see our smallness, we see our weakness, we see our vulnerability, we see our rebellion so that we always see the depths of God's deliverance of us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, that we would, we would be ignorant of the ways in which you have delivered us. Lord, we'd be self-deluded, thinking that we're the ones that have gotten us to our own place in life. Lord, that we would think that we've got to save ourselves. But Lord, we cry out to you to deliver us today. Lord, I pray for whatever people problems we have, Lord, whether it's our uh, need to pray for the repentance of others, our need to trust in your judgment, or our need to move forward towards those who have hurt us with forgiveness. Lord, I pray you would do that work in us, that we might be able to sing Psalm 124. In Christ's name, amen.